Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. It's Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's Cindy. Hi. Uh, If you do a web search for Steve Tilston, most of the results will be about John Lennon. You see, Lennon wrote a letter to a young Steve offering him some advice, but Steve did not know about that letter until decades later. His story would eventually become the 2015 film Danny Collins, starring Al Pacino. Steve's talked about this subject probably 1,000 times, and it might be the biggest thing that defines his career. However, there is so much more to talk about with Steve. He's worked with folk legends Fairport Convention, Burt Yanch, Maggie Boyle, Chris Smither, and many more. His latest album, Such Times, has incredible energy and his signature British folk guitar playing. Steve talks about his partnership with the late Maggie Boyle and how she was instrumental in deepening his interest and knowledge of Irish music. He reflects on how his children's interests and careers in music have kept him engaged and involved. This is the 50th anniversary of Steve starting up in the music business. We talk about all this, and yes, we talk about the John Lennon letter too. We'll get to our conversation with Steve Tilston, but first, let's hear a clip of the new song Daylight Rising from Steve Tilson, and then we'll get to our conversation on Basic Folk. Daylight will come rising With a long night, a last goodbye was your town like growing up and what was your home like well Leicester is um a pretty it's quite a wealthy town um but it's pretty nondescript really so it's really kind of the epitome of uh middle England and um I was aware of um uh, although I was very young when I left Liverpool um, 
I, uh, my, my dad was Welsh, you see, so we would go, practically every other weekend, we'd go back to North Wales to um, spend time with the family there. And so there was always a feeling for me that, although I lived in Leicester, I was from part of something else outside, you know, mm. and I think part of that, that, Welsh, that Welsh heritage. And, um, but, you know, it's, it's, it, Leicester, it had a great music scene. And I think it was because of, out of that kind of almost nondescript uh, aspect, people, people tend to dream, I suppose, you know, musical kind of musical dreams. I know I did, you know, sort of, uh, and, uh, there was always a great music scene and some great, great players there. I mean, not not a patch on Liverpool, really, but um, even so, it has turned out some quite good, good, good uh, musicians. And uh, yeah, so but it was it was a place I wanted to. Um, I knew I would leave there as soon as I was um, um, able to, you know. And at the age of twenty, I moved down to London because mm. by then I knew that I wanted to be a professional musician, and I knew that to make it, in inverted commas, I'd have to move to London. That was the perceived way of doing things in those days. Nowadays, people don't really see it the same, you know, but uh, certainly... How far is Leicester from London? It's just over 100 miles, so it's not very far. Not in American terms, it's not... (sighs) I want to hear more about what it was like to feel more Welsh then more would you so i'm an american obviously yeah, yes. so i don't like exactly know the terminology but like wales it's my perception that it's like a very special place kind of outside of england yes it's kind of it's it's yes it's on it's to the on the west and uh, you see the welsh were the original inhabitants of britain before the um saxons came and so the brythonic celtic people and um, so, I mean, not that I was aware of that when I was a kid, but I just was aware that it was other something other. I mean, I remember my my grandmother, who was speaking Welsh for most of it for her early life, you know, taught me how to say "llanfair pulgwin gethgo gerelltwendro go go goch," which is the you know, and, and, and little things like that, you know, just made me kind of feel. <laughs> <laughs> That's a crazy language. Yeah, well, it's the original language of these of, of the British Isles, right wow. up right up to um, to Aberdeen uh, before the the Scots came in. The kept the the Gaelic Scots came in from Ireland, so uh, most yeah. of, of Britain was speaking Welsh, Brythonic, uh, Celtic. So um, yeah, so it's kind of, um, and I suppose it was it was. Um, <laughs> my dad would kind of uh, romance it quite a lot, you know, where, especially when we mm. passed the border, across the border, and he would sort of start speaking with a kind of uh, more of a sing-song uh, Welsh accent. <laughs> mm. Which took to my mother's um, mother's embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of, it sounds like it was more of a cultural touchstone. Yes, that's what it was. For- Yes. For him. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yes. But he, he, you know, and he, it was all all good fun. He would make a joke of it. But it was kind of meeting some of these um, 
these relations. Um, and I knew they were different. <laughs> yeah. How were you listening to music back then and who was kind of bringing you the good stuff? Right. Well, I think it, it was, I've got turned, my very first girlfriend uh, was an Elvis Presley fanatic. So I would be at the age of 12 and she basically turned me on to Elvis and um, and I remember hearing it was the Scotty Moore's guitar playing that uh, as much as Elvis's voice that uh, got me. And mm. um, so, and then from there, uh, of course, the um, the Beatles hit and started being really popular all over the world and a lot of other Liverpool bands. So I've been born in Liverpool. I was, uh, I, I felt a certain pride, even though I'd not been back there since, you know, well, I've been back to see relatives, but I'd not, you know, lived there since I was a toddler. Um, so it was, um, and I, 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 everybody then um, basically had a guitar. And I mean, like the school bus, mm. we'd have a 20 mile journey every um, day there and back uh, on the school bus. And it seemed like everybody was strumming a guitar and you're all trying to outdo each other. See the first person to play a bar chord and who could play which, you know, solo from which Beatles song and the Rolling Stones and all this kind of thing. And I remember the bus driver screeching to a halt. And he turned around and he said, I can't stand it anymore. And he said, and you, Tilston, he said, get your greasy, greasy head off that window. Because <laughs> 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 everybody used to have Brill Cream, you see. Everybody used to kind of like... Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, but it was kind of, like I say, it was, it was uh, at that particular time in Britain, uh, it was... Um, Everybody was in a band. They're all forming bands, and I had, had a band called The Heartbeats <laughs> after Buddy Holly's song The Heartbeats. And our first gig was at the local youth club, and we had a drummer who was the most atrocious drummer ever. But he actually owned, owned a, a drum kit, and his name was Fred. And I remember we turned up to the youth club to do this, our first ever gig, and we were billed as Fred and the Heartbeats. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and my heart sank. How old were you? I would be about 13, 14, I suppose, then. Yeah. Wow. So I'd only had a guitar uh, for about a year or so. Then, so yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. When Where did you get your first guitar? And can you talk about how it first felt to play and learn the instrument? Well, I, I, I got one for Christmas and uh, I really hadn't got a clue how it worked. And it wasn't until an uncle came who'd been in the, um, in, in the army and he, um, he knew a few chords and he showed me um, a couple of chords and that was it. And it started falling into place. The, um, and then, of course, it, would be, it was a shared experience because everybody, every other person I knew was trying to play the guitar at the same time, you know, mm. and uh, we're trying to play the latest Beatles song and whatever. Um, I grabbed this quote from you about the type of music that resonates with you. I think I wrote this quote down and I wanted to ask you about something in particular. So the quote is, whatever the format, a song has to swing. 
And your songs all seem to have like a particular swing, especially like in your guitar playing. And you've also been in the company of other guitarists who like also have that kind of like swing element. Um, Chris Smither, Martin Simpson, Wiz Jones. Yeah, Wiz, uh, I'm glad, uh, Wiz and, and Chris in particular. Yes, they've got that swing. And it's just, it's just, it's just something you feel, isn't it? I mean, it's, uh, uh, um, yes, it just seems so important, uh, but it's, it's such an intrinsic part of it. And it's the, it's, it's the, um, the engine room of the, of the music, really. So, mm. uh, yeah. How did you learn that particular style of playing and what, can you talk more about what draws you towards it? Well, it's kind of, well, I mean, initially it was, um, uh, um, I started getting, um, I, I could see how things um, matched up, certain guitar styles and and how a lot of them were, I was so, I was inexorably drawn to the blues because so much, so much music comes from that, certainly so, so much rock and roll music. And um, so I remember hearing, uh, uh, and at that time, you see, a lot of the when the Rolling Stones um, hit, they were citing all these um, uh, blues people who were influence influential on them, and um, so it became incumbent on us to when you when you walk down uh, the road to catch the school bus, you had to have a couple of obscure blues records on, under your arm, you know, like the most obscure, the better. Like sort of, uh, I mean, somebody was um, outdid us all by having an album by a fella called Sleepy John Estes. And I thought, Sleepy John Estes, what a name. It's fantastic. What's he like? It's got to be great with a name like that. And uh, yes, yeah, so, <laughs> so it was amazing. Would you take them to play them? Oh, um and on a record player at school? Yes, yes, we had. Uh, by then I was in, you know, getting towards the... the um, uh, as you get, as you progress, uh, as you get a bit older, and also I was in um, the art class, so as the the the, the, the arty art stream, and so we had in the art room, we had um, the older uh, six formers would have um, had a, um, a you know a little a, a little deck, and uh, they would be playing music during the break time and during the lunchtime period. So, so it was uh, music was you know at that particular time it was everywhere and it was it seemed like it was uh, I think obviously with in America you've um, uh, this this kind of music is well it's your music uh, initially and um, so it's it seemed like something new. I think we just you know something new, a new experience over here. I mean, obviously, of course, we've had, had music, but it was just the 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 rock and roll and the blues. And um, I mean that in in the sixties, it 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 it, um, it hit Britain in such a, it was a real boom. And I think a lot of the um, the black musicians were um, were finding it difficult making a living in America, and so they were coming over to. Um, um, Britain and Europe, and uh, being treated as kings, and um, mm. you know, it was uh, certainly Big Bill Brunsey, and then lo locally. I mean, I'm, uh, later, I remember we used to have these blues packages, and they would come every year, and um, there would be about a dozen acts. Well, I saw some of the great, like a live show. Yeah, I saw some of the great players there. You know, I saw 
Sunhouse, I saw Skip James, um, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, Hound Dog Tag, go on. They were just, uh, and they were just fantastic. Great education. My gosh, you are friends with Chris Smithers. <laughs> this was happened. This happened long before I knew who Chris was, or he knew who I was. Yeah, <laughs> but you yeah. guys are living parallel. Well, lives. that's absolutely right. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned the art room. Um, you were working as a graphic designer before you decided to do music. Is that's that right. Or? Yes, I. Um, when I left school, I was going to go to art college, but I. Um, in the summer holidays, I was looking for a job and I just applied to this, um, an advertising agency that had a design studio. And it just so happened I, I, I applied and they, there, was a, there was a post going and um, I just wanted a, like a, a summer holiday job. And they said, well, it's a trainee. We need a trainee, you know, permanent post. So... Uh, and they offered me what then I thought was almost like a king's ransom. <laughs> so <laughs> I I took it and I I worked there for th- from the age of seventeen till twenty. Um, mm. it, on reflection, I wish I'd gone to art college instead. But um, I was um, basically I was designing things like. Um, beer mats and uh, for sale signs and you know biscuit boxes and things like that it was after a while it was quite I found it quite tedious and um, I was I was then earning more money as a musician I was starting to get booked and um, one time I fell asleep on my desk as I was burning the candle at both ends and uh, right this uh, fellow McLachlan who became a famous cartoonist he drew the outline of my head on my desk with Zs going up, like a succession of Zs coming out my nose. Zs. Zs. I get that. Yeah, sorry, Zs, yeah. Z, like Z. you're sleeping. Yeah, yeah, yeah Zs, yeah, Zs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I uh, wanted to ask you about your writing style, a couple different questions about like how it's progressed over your career. Like when you first started writing, I read that you were reflecting and and hear the reflecting of nostalgia in your songs, even as a 21 year old. Um, How has your desire to be sentimental uh, impacted your songwriting over the years? Well, it always creeps in, sentimentality, whether I like it or not. <laughs> uh, but but not unduly, I don't think. I mean, I kind of... Um, um, I'm still a, a sort of romantic at heart, but, you know, I kind of... Um, the age that I'm at now, I can't help being a little bit um, cynical about certain things. And... Uh, Yes, and some of that that may creep into the music, you know, because I'm um, mm. a, a document life as I see it, and um, yes, so sometimes I may have a sorry a jaundice, slightly jaundiced view of uh, aspect of uh, of things, um, but you know, I kind of I can still see the beauty and uh, and joy in um, in life, and so I document that as well. So hopefully, in, in equal measure. I don't take you for a cynic after knowing you for five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I think unfortunately, um, I, I, I am becoming quite cynical 
um, and I try and fight it, but um, it's it's the political situation is um, certainly over here doesn't leave me with a great deal of um, joy. But you know, but I, but I'm I'm still it's still um, balanced with a certain amount of natural optimism. So I'm not kind of um, no, I'm not a total cynic by any means. But um, maybe it's a kind of acid realism. <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, I read this like interview that you did in the 90s um, where you said you don't like songs that don't mean anything. And then specifically in this interview, you said um, you didn't like Oasis songwriting. Um, Is that what I said? And then you also, <laughs> you, yeah, it was funny. You're like, I'm paraphrasing, but you're like, the songs don't mean anything. And then they get stuck in my head. And I know they're going to make a lot of money, but I just like can't, I can't stand it. Um, and then. I also like what you said. Songs that are written in your teens are like a courtship ritual, really, like a verbal plumage, which I mean, I know that uh, an interview from the 90s at this point is like almost 30 years old. But um, I just like really interesting takeaways there. How have you seen the arc of your songwriting career and how do you reflect on your past selves and where are you now with your writing? <laughs> well, I know you said you were cynical, but I don't believe it. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. Um, well, funny, actually, now I can't, I can vaguely remember that quote about Oasis. I think it was probably because my son was playing them incessantly at home. <laughs> <laughs> and I was kind of, I remember banging on the door and saying, yes, but what does it mean, Joe? What does it mean? What's he actually saying? <laughs> and Joe's like, well, I don't know. You know, it's just... <laughs> And, uh, How it feels. Yeah, yeah. And uh, well, it's uh, well interesting because I just, I just the last the album I did prior to this last one was a retrospective called, and I called it Distant Days. So I went back and I um, basically dug in the permafrost of my past <laughs> and dug out these songs and uh, going right back to my first album. And uh, to to create this this album of um, you know distant days, an album, a retrospective album, and um, some of the songs I played the same. Some I had to change because my voice is lowered, and some I just thought, well, actually, this will be better if I totally rearrange it. But it was interesting going back because it put me. I think this is the going back and revisiting songs because they are little capsules of time and um, you open them and you kind of like it, it's it's almost you can smell that time you can you can really be there in that time so it's kind of it was really interesting quite fascinating but not not always pleasant you know some because it would then I would remember certain things that were that were happening at that time and um, so maybe certain things that I'd said that weren't, uh, maybe I'd wounded somebody, you know, I'd hurt somebody and um, also been hurt before. So it kind of opened up a lot of stuff that was had lain dormant, been subsumed, but um, in a way, you know, quite cathartic to be able to do that. Hmm. And so um, I... I, I as to whether I've progressed as a songwriter, I, I, I have as a musician, because I now know a, a hell of a lot more. I'm, I'm uh, and understand, you know, the um, music and the theory, etc. But 
actually, whether that makes me a better songwriter, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. In 1972, after you released your second record, The Collection, I read that you ran away to fish mackerel in the West Country. Yeah, I which did. Which I need a uh, translation for what that was. Right, okay. Um, the second album was uh, the difficult second, second album. Um, somewhere in there, lurking in there, is quite a good album, but it got overproduced it got things added to it that I didn't want to be added to it, like um, uh, brass sections and uh, string quartet. Well, the string quartets were not bad, but the brass sections were just... Um, and uh, the, the sleeve as well. So I was just I was just insanely embarrassed. I was by the whole thing. And I, I, I just felt so sick about it. And uh, I really was wanting to stop the um the album being put out like that and it ultimately i fell out um fell out with the record company so there was a lot of bad feeling there and uh, they 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 said they'd put so much money into it and they basically were trying to turn me into a kind of you know a uh a, a pop singer songwriter and um i just didn't particularly want to go down that route and um, so anyway, I, I basically said, well, bugger it. And uh, I, I ran away and <laughs> I uh, I got a couple of friends who were fishing in uh, Penzance in Cornwall, fishing for mackerel. They got a small boat and they were going out and I I joined them. And I kind of, I, I thought, I kidded myself. I, I'd left and I, I was, this is what I was going to now do. But I, I basically, I just did it for about two or three weeks, and it was, <laughs> <laughs> and it was. Uh, uh, I mean, for a couple of weeks, it was idyllic, and then the bottom dropped out the mackerel, mackerel fish, and so we had to <laughs> had to go long lining, which um, which means is you've got a, a line that is about half a mile long, and it's got a hook. At about a yard, every yard, and you first of all in the late afternoon you have to bait every hook, and then you go out in the boat and you throw this long line over board, and then first thing in the morning, about five o'clock in the morning, you then go out and you pull this this long line up, and I still have nightmares of some of the fish we pulled out from <laughs> this dogfish, which is a member of the shark, a very small shark, but, uh, and uh, uh, conger eels, which are vicious creatures. <laughs> and uh, so I thought, well, maybe the folk singing is the life for me after all. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I uh, bid my goodbyes to the fishing uh, industry and, and uh, <laughs> went back um, um, and nobody knew I'd gone anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah. That sounds fun for about two weeks. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, it was. Or interesting, yeah. not fun. Uh, so in thinking about um, what the label was doing with your record and what you wanted to do with your record in terms of like aspiration for success versus artistic expression, yeah. how has that been? balanced for you throughout your career well in fact that was a salutary lesson that that album and so i i basically said to myself i promised myself i would never um be be put in that situation again that i would always 
have uh, control over um, what what I what was released and what um, mm. yeah what, what the music the music I made and um, and that's how it's been really and um, I'd be on, on I'd be honest you know be true to say that I've not really kind of um, experienced uh, great wealth and riches and uh, and success but on the other hand I'm I've always been my own man and I've managed to make a living at it and um, I wouldn't change it for the world. <laughs> I wanted to hear more about your musical partnership with Maggie. Um, she was an extremely talented Irish flute player and singer, and you were someone who was interested in Irish music. So how did collaborating with her deepen your connection to that style of music? Oh, without a doubt, because, um, I mean, once Maggie and I got together, whether I liked it or not, I was immersed in, 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 in Irish music because that was her life and her family's life. Her father was ran, was kind of like the capo of the London Irish scene. And, uh, yes, yeah, so it was, it was ever present. And, um, so it was, it was great. It was an very enriching experience, music, musically speaking, there were no two ways about it. And, uh, of course, out of the uh, we, when we started uh, playing together as a duo, that we then uh, were asked by John Remborn to um, form Ship of Fools with him, and we came and toured the states a couple of times, and then we were also um, asked by there's a, a, a very prestigious ballet company called the Ballet Rambert in London, and um, we were involved with them in, in an Irish ballet called Sergeant Early's Dream, and we were in, involved in, in, in playing the music there. And we toured, you know, the, the, the world with that as well. Went to Egypt and Jordan and Poland behind the Iron Curtain. So it was kind of quite fascinating times, interesting times. So, yes, which wouldn't have happened, which, sorry, wouldn't have happened unless I'd, uh, you know, without uh, that connection that, uh, you know, through Maggie Boyle and all the musicians I met, the Irish musicians. So how did being around all of that Irish music maybe change, change you, you as a musician, whether it be your writing or your playing? Well, it, it did without a doubt, because I was, um, I was then thrown into learning how to play quite a lot of it because I would be um, uh, accompanying Maggie singing and playing. And also I just was got fascinated by it and I wanted to, you know, it's like anything when I, you, you kind of get um, fascinate, fascination and an obsession and then you, you want to do it to the best of your abilities. And mm -hmm. I think with, when we were with uh, Ship of Fools, the band, um, Obviously, we we were out touring professionally. Is Irish music similar to the music of Wales? Not really. I mean, there are certain no. similarities. I mean, the thing is, there's all because obviously uh, there are songs that are um, uh, common to both the English, Scots, and Irish tradition. You know, because obviously songs 
a good song knows no national boundaries. You know, it's like a good joke. Mm-hmm. You know, you tell it, and mm-hmm. then it and, and and it will change to a certain extent. Obviously, before um, um, recording devices were invented, so that you would get a variation. So it was like, and it's obviously like how American music came came up about with. Um, so a lot of the um, the the British and Irish music that was taken over to the States, um, obviously developed its own flavour because they, uh, they'd lost the original reference point other than the um, the words and the initial tune. But, I mean, obviously the the, the playing, the, the, the style of playing would change quite, uh, quite drastically. Uh, I'm glad it did because it's great because that's the, one of the wonderful things about American music, you know. And it really did get that swing, I think. Mind you, the Irish and the Scots have always had that swing. Now, whether the, the English did at that time, uh, who knows? Who knows? But, um, uh, but I mean, you know, being fair to the English, the kind of uh, a lot of the big body of the mostly the Appalachia, all those those uh, ballads were, um, mm-hmm. were originally English, you know, English. Yeah. Yeah. So Joe is in a punk band and martha is a folk singer so those are your two two children that are professional musicians molly was molly was as well molly but she's um she's not anymore uh my oldest daughter sophie is an artist um joe yes he had a um a very loud punk metal band um they came to the states a couple of times came to canada quite a lot they even went to Russia about three or four times. Wow. So they were, they were quite, yeah, they were called um, Random Hand. Oh yeah. And they, um, they they got really quite popular, pretty much the top of that genre. But it was like I went to a couple of gigs, but I th- uh, it was so loud I thought I was going to have a, a seizure, so I had to leave. <laughs> but Joe, Joe is kind of he's he's got an alter ego. He's 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 a very good guitar finger picking guitar player and songwriter, and he's done an album for for a label um, of just him, you know, guitar and, and and string quartet and things like that. It's it's a lovely album. Oh, yeah. And his last name is yours. Yeah, Tilston and Martha as well. Martha is um, quite well known. Uh, over here, yeah. and she's got a you know quite a big following, and um, I don't know if you've heard any of her music, so uh, yes, it's kind of it's different to mine. You know, she's got her own sound and everything. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So, how does having musical children uh, keep you energized in your own music, and how does it help you relate and connect to them? It's just how it is. So, I think with Martha, um, right from the word go, she kind of like she knew where she wanted to go and the kind of music she wanted to write. So when she would ask me for uh, how, what I thought, and a couple of times I, 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 I criticised, I said, well, you know, why, why, why are you doing this? Why? And, and she would really didn't like it. She, she said, well, you know, basically, what right have you got to criticise? I said, fair enough, you just carry on writing. <laughs> so really, we kind of leave that... Uh, all that aside, really, I think, um, and she's yeah, she's her own woman. She's um, you know a great writer, and um, you know if she if she'll ask me, I still will tell her that uh, certain things I don't. But but she comes to she's she's from a different different generation, a different a different um, viewpoint, and a different um, different way of writing. And but you see, I'm still 
I don't know what it is, whether whether it's just because the 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 age or the kind of the um school background I come from. I, I just um I find myself um I'm still caught in the, the, the tyranny of rhyme. I still like the, the rhyming scheme still uh, are important to me. <laughs> you know, I just uh, you know and, and she's she's not she doesn't have those constraints. And I wish, you know, I, ha- I had that freedom sometimes, but I'm so ingrained in me that this kind of, that, um, and it troubles me if things don't, don't rhyme or at least um, have a, a semblance of, of rhyme. And also, you know, certain sort of um, a scan. Does it kind of like ignite your perfectionism? It doesn't rhyme. <laughs> well, well, it, it it does. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, it will. It will. Yes, it will. Kind of thing. I think. Well, hang on. That's not. Why did she say that? She could have easily said, chosen this word. You know, it would have actually nearly rhymed. But she, you know, um, it's just a different aspect, different way of looking at things, a different way of doing That's it. Funny. And, yeah. So. Um, That's yeah. hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you dare tell her I told you. So. <laughs> I won't, yeah. Secret safe. No one will know. Um, okay, so uh, this is the John Lennon portion of the interview because Googling Steve Tilston, you cannot help but come across at least 100 articles about this very topic. So in 2015, the movie Danny Collins came out. It was written and directed by Dan Fogelman, and it was super loosely based on your experience. John Lennon wrote you a letter in 1971 after reading an interview where you expressed concern about fame and fortune impacting your artistic integrity. How are we doing so far? That's it. it. That's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You're spot on. And so... The letter, let me just read a little bit of it from from John Lennon to you. Being rich doesn't change your experience in the way you think. The only difference, basically, is that you don't have to worry about money. Um, everything is the same as anybody's. I know I've been rich and poor, and so has Yoko. So what do you think of that? Love, John, and Yoko. That's I skipped a couple lines. but um, So you did not know about this letter until 2005. You talked about it in a 2010 interview that Dan, the director and writer of the movie, read. He then contacted you and asked if he could make it into a film, except your character would basically be the total opposite of you. Uh, So Al Pacino plays this corny rock star whose life has completely been changed by fame, drugs, women, terrible things. Anyways, lovely film. There is a whole lot to process in that whole story. So I have a couple questions. Sure. Thank you for bearing with me retelling that story. Um, I'm sure you've heard it a million times. Um, not this week. About the, <laughs> not this week. <laughs> about the John Lennon letter. So you were like, at first you were like understandably irritated when you found out about it, but then you came to the conclusion that your life would have probably been the same had you gotten the letter in 1971 instead of learning about it in 2005. Can you talk about the cycle of emotions you felt during that time, like about your life, your music, your career, and how you worked to that conclusion that, like, you know what? It probably would have been the same had I gotten this letter. Okay. When I first was contacted by this bloke, this fellow in um, 
in the States who'd bought this letter and he wanted me to verify it. So I said, he said, are you the Steve Tilston or son of Steve Tilston that John Lennon wrote to? Um, the, something about Zigzag magazine. And so I thought, what? what Zigzag magazine? What's, what's this? So I, I said, well, I did an interview for, oh, he said in 1971. I did an interview for Zigzag in 1971. Tell me more. And he so went. He didn't know that you didn't know about that's it. That's right. Yeah. So I think then he thought, oh, this this could be dodgy, you know. What's um, maybe I maybe I, I want the record, want the 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 letter back. I don't know. Um, so he went quiet, and I said, "Look." So I sent him this email and said, "Look, I don't want the letter, but I would like to you know see a copy of it. And can you you know because obviously it's it's you know it's it's you've kind of whetted my appetite to the mm. end, to the nth degree." Can you? So then totally. straight away back came this um, perfect copy, you know, of course, um, electronic copy of this. And I couldn't believe it because it was, um, sure enough, it was the real deal. And not only that, but John Lennon must have spent the whole afternoon writing it and colouring in and doing little doodles and things on this on this letter. And in fact, Dan Fogelman had had dinner with Yoko Ono and she remembered him doing that letter, which is amazing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Anyway, um, so when I found out about this, I started uh, thinking, well, what's happened here? Somebody has obviously not told me about it. They've received this thing at Zigzag Magazine and they've sold it on and somebody's made a nice piece of change somewhere along the line and I, I i'm not you know it's it, and it, it should it is my property but so i start i then rang the per the um uh, the person who i thought was responsible and sure enough he i could tell by the way <laughs> he wasn't expecting me to ring him out the blue and uh i could tell he was um he was. He tried to backtrack, but I knew that I. Uh, I said, "Well, I, oh I, I would. I'll. Ri- I, I want you to compose yourself, and I'll, I'm going to ring you back in a week's time." And uh, anyway, I did. And that, in, the, in, in the in the succeeding in in that week, I found out that he got a bit of a heart condition. So I thought, "Oh God, no! I don't want a guy to be responsible for giving him giving him uh, you know a heart attack or anything like that." So right. anyway, jeez. So. Um, I'd written uh, I'd written this novel, a historical novel, and I was looking for um, somebody to to review it. And um, somebody, a friend, a journalist friend, had put me in touch with somebody at this um, a British newspaper called the Daily Telegraph, and. Um, they were interviewed me about the book and everything. They said, well, you know, it's all very well, but we need something to hang this on. And I, I, I said, anything sort of happened recently that's kind of interesting? I said, well, there was this John Lennon letter. And, of course, straight away, the whole thing became about John Lennon and there was only a tiny little bit about my book. <laughs> right, and also a book. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. So anyway, um, so then it became it it, it made uh, it got a hell of a it, it, that it, that was the first time it went sort of global, and obviously Dan Fogelman must have read he read uh, all about this and it gave him the idea of making this film and using this device, whereby um, a young artist is um, 
a letter is written to him from John Lennon, but he doesn't get for 30 odd years. And that was the, the only real um, uh, similarity, really, between, you know, my life. As you said before, I mean, Al Pacino plays this kind of like uh, Las, Las Vegas style crooner. Um, and yeah, I'm obviously not that kind of musician. <laughs> But no. Uh, no, and he's obviously um, he's he's been successful as regards wealth beyond the dreams of avarice, you know. So um, so it's not remotely like my life at all. He had a bunch of horns on all of his albums. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. So anyway, uh, yes, right, and a bunch of horns. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, so um, but you know, it was it was um, Dan was very gracious and. Um, uh, tied me in and uh, on uh, part of the uh, the action with the film and you know the part the, and the monetary action and um, it was great. So I'm I, I made a bit of money and um, got to meet Al Pacino. So I didn't meet Lennon, but I met Al Pacino. I mean, the thing is, I, obviously, when I saw the letter and I saw that it was kind of written, it was like an older brother. This this kind of bit of a, it was like a sort of bit of advice, like an old, old older brother's mm-hmm. advice. And also, he'd included his tel- his home telephone number, which I thought was so poignant because my first inclination was to reach for the phone, but of course, the poor man had been dead for. Um, so long and i was when i got it i was actually older than he he was he, yeah you know so um it was a strange feeling very strange feeling and uh, but you know quite honestly if um, if i had had the letter then it wouldn't really have been much of a story and uh, the film would have been made and um yeah so uh, and, and, it would have been like a footnote yes i mean obviously as you intimated, there is there, there were a thousand what ifs. What if I'd rung him? What if I'd mm-hmm. um, if I got it on time? And what if I'd you know, because I did have a brass neck, you know, I was not backwards at coming forwards, as they say. I would have. Um, Wait, hold on. What does it mean to have a brass neck? It means I wasn't. I was. You know, I I was not terribly shy about um, you know an op- taking an opportunity. Oh, okay. Yeah, it wasn't. Um, so I would have rung, and I think the fact that he included his telephone number there was a kind of an indication to ring him. Um, so, and who knows where that would have uh, led? You know, it would have been great to think that I could have gone and played played some music with him, but you know, you never know. But life for all of us is full of a thousand what ifs. And so mm-hmm. uh, it's just that's part of the life life condition, isn't it? You know, it's sort of. So he was 30 years old when he wrote that letter and you were 21. That's right. Yeah. 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 Just has a whole lot of like, it's either there's a whole lot of self-confidence in what he's writing or he read your interview and he maybe was like bothered by the fact that maybe, you know, bothered by the, an inkling that like fame and fortune could have changed his artistic. That's right. Yes. Yes. There's two, there's two ways of, of reading it. Yes. Either he was troubled. He thought that, um, um, now whether it was also because the Liverpool connection, maybe we, you know, because I think they kind of, that, um, that, that article mentions the fact that I was born in Liverpool. So maybe there's a kind of, mm-hmm. maybe that's why he, um, made the connection. Who knows? Who knows? I mean, as someone who's been 30 years old myself, yeah. I 
like can't exactly say that like when I was 30, I would be in that position to exude that wisdom without some kind of like. Yes. But if you, if you look at, self-doubt. look at Lenin's um, development, you know, I mean, he was, he was one of the most famous people in the world right. at that time. He'd also His become, experience was way different. Than he'd, he'd also become very political. And uh, all that, that um, um, the peace, peace movement he was involved in. Mm. Um, so maybe it was there. Maybe what? Sorry. Just interested. I was just interested in like what you thought about the concept of like his projection. Yes, well, it's kind of um, uh, both those occurred to me. You know, first, I, I like to think it was a bit of uh, elder brother, brotherly advice. But on the other hand, it could have, yes, it could have, I could have needed. And then the, the cynic wakes up and. <laughs> well, it could have, it could have been needled by who is this young upstart, you know, sort of like taking himself right. so seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> have you still not ever seen the real letter? No, I've not. No, no. Wow. No. But you know, it just, I don't doesn't I don't lose any sleep over it at all. I've seen I've seen right. the exact copy, so I don't really I don't really need to. I don't really need to. It's kind of um, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, that was a huge story for you. It's crazy. Like in researching this interview, I found. It must have been like fifty articles about it. I know, I know. In a way, in a, you up. But what happened was it then sort of started taking over, and like you say, that whenever my name comes up, it, it it's inexorably entwined with uh, the John Lennon letter, and to some mm-hmm. some degrees, it's a bit irksome. <laughs> I do want to talk about your new album, Such Times, um, which I really enjoy. And Thanks, hear Sammy. about your new guitar that you used on this record, your self-designed Brooke Calder guitar. So about about the guitar and then what it brought to these new songs. Yes. Well, I th- the thing is, I, I had it in the attic when we started off this interview. And I would have shown it you, but of course, I'm not going to go back no. at the top of the house. Three, <laughs> three stories. <laughs> Are you holding it on the cover? Yes, but you can't really see much of it. It's it's, it's basically an offset. I suppose instead of a, a, a cutaway, you know, like some guitars have a cutaway on the treble, on the treble side. This has got more like a slope away, and it just it's it's not a kind of radical radically different guitar. And um, it's just, I, I don't know why they made so much of it, but uh, the record company, but, oh. uh, but um, obviously they they mentioned it on on the actual sleeve and. Um, yeah, it's it's but it's great. They made it seem like you were over the moon about. Oh this well, I am. Guitar. I am over the moon. It's a lovely. <laughs> it's a lovely guitar. It's a lovely guitar, but it's it's not sort of um, um, radically different. I'll tell you what. Look, to me, the best sounding guitar. Are you a guitar player at all? Do you play guitar a bit? No, what? I have held a guitar. You've held a guitar. <laughs> 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 well. Well, the best way it was describing it, instead of a cutaway, it's a slope away. So uh, on the bass side, bass strings, it hits the, the neck, hits the guitar body on the 12th fret. And on the treble side, it hits it at the 14th fret. So it's just an offset as opposed to a cutaway. And um, yeah, that's all. It's not, it's not radical stuff. I can't wait to look that up and <laughs> find out what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you are now 50 years into your career. 
Um, how does it feel now to release new music versus at other points in your career? Well, this one obviously made rad under radically different circumstances. Um, um, it was started before the pandemic and the first lockdown. And um, I just obviously, I needed to some uh, distractions and I, um, well, music is, writing music is a great, is, to me is the ultimate distraction. It's great. That's why, why I love it. And um, it's a distraction from um, uh, whatever you want to say, um, boredom, uh, um, extraneous uh, uh, frustrations and things. It's it's it, it, so you're in your own world. Global and, trauma. Yeah. Well, it's, yes. Yeah. But I mean, unless you choose to write about that, obviously. <laughs> right. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Diving right in. Yeah. Absolutely. Diving right in. Yeah. And yeah. So I think I I, I got the impression that I, you know I'm, I'm not remotely alone. Everybody. It was all these kind of little. Little people in these their own musical microclimates, <laughs> you know, strumming and plucking away and writing, mm. beaver, beavering away, and yes, because it's 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 it. What was happening out there? What is still happening out there is is pretty horrendous, isn't it? So it's um, mm. and so to be able to kind of um, uh, still write music and um, to be able to record it under sort of certain, uh, as I say, constraints. But, um, uh, for instance, if, if, if the album had been made under different times, it probably would have uh, been a different bunch of songs written and it probably would have had different instrumentation. But out of necessity, it's just got, there's just three uh, musicians playing, myself and two other, my, the bass player I, I um, you know, usually gig with over here. Hugh Bradley, who also plays, plays flute, and Dave Crickmore, who's who's basically recorded uh, the last um, several of my albums, and uh, is a wonderful musician. So he was able to play, uh, add percussion and piano, and so I I would tell him the kind of sound I wanted. I said when I wanted piano, I said look, because I, I, I couldn't go there, I couldn't be in the same studio, but I so I said look, I, I want. You to play the piano, but I want you to play it almost like a rhythm instrument. I don't want you to play any, really anything fancy. So you let the guitar do the fancy stuff, and the piano just underpin that almost like a rhythm guitar, uh, which he did, you know. And it's, it sort of works a treat. And uh, he's had some nice subtle percussion and um, with a string bass and flute and a few extra, you know, just um, a harmony vocals, and that's it. Um. With the with the pandemic, can you explain what the process of recording this record looked like? You're talking about it a little bit of not being in the same studio. Yes, because what what happened was uh, I I've been recording. Uh, Dave Crickmore has a had a studio in his in his basement, and it's uh, you know quite a small small space, and um, so that was just <clears throat> not remotely. Uh, permissible or desirable to go and in that small space with uh, uh, and record with somebody. Um, I have another quote of yours where you said, "I honestly can't think of anything I'd rather be than a nomadic musician." So, how has it been like for you to not be able to tour this past year and 
What are some surprising things you've discovered about yourself? Well, it's been very frustrating, but in, in, in lots of ways. But on the other hand, it's kind of, I'm, I'm, ve- I'm blessed that I live in a, a lovely part of the world, um, in, in, in Yorkshire, in, in Hebden Bridge, and I'm in, in the hills, the Pennine Hills, and I'm able to get up out of my back garden, just go up on the moor, and then onto the, the tops of the hills. And um, it's just quite spiritual. It's beautiful up there. It's just, and it's been a great, um, it's been, so every day practically uh, we go for walks. And um, so it's, I've had to readjust my life quite a lot. I mean, I did, I, did, I used to walk, I've always walked a lot, you know, and rambled and, um, or hiked, I think. Um, but, um, so I've missed I've missed the um going out on the road and performing yeah I'm, I'm, uh, it's it's been a big part of my life but I'm I think I'm sort of old enough to be able to make the mental adjustment and sort of realize that this is the state this is the situation we're in and not to whinge about it not to just to kind of like go because this will pass hopefully and mm-hmm. um uh, I, when I get out back again on the road, I will en- enjoy it even more. I think you know, and um, so I still, I'm still practice a lot, still play a lot, still trying to keep myself match fit, and um, <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> so it gives me it gives me something to kind of focus on. Uh, well, before before we wrap up, um, will you do the lightning round? Yes, of course. Yes, 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 yes. All right. Okay. What was the first song you learned on the guitar? Um, Deep in the Heart of Texts. That was what my uncle, that my, it's only song my uncle could play. He showed me it. I was pretty sure you were going to say a Beatles song, but I like that answer. Well, yeah, because the first, um, dun, 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 like the open strings on the inside of the guitar. Right. (laughs) Dogs or cats or something else? Um, I, I, I've had cats and dogs when I was younger. My daughter's got this delightful dog that um, I take out walking, and I, um, I'm kind of in love with it. I know I don't tell her that, and uh, I just. What kind of dog is it? It's uh, what's oh, it's called a, a it's a cockapoo. And it's the kind of dog I never thought I would like. You know, it's a cross between a, uh, a cocker spaniel and a poodle. I, I, I keep saying to her that maybe I'll get a dog when they learn to clean up their own mess. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> who is your first celebrity crush? I used to love to say the voice of Doris Day. <laughs> I don't know. I, honestly, I, I really did. Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> who is the nicest musician you've ever met? The nicest musician I've ever met. Uh, I think uh, Ralph McTell. Ralph McTell. Mm. Yeah. Chris is good as well. First. Chris. Chris is a good guy. Chris Smithers is yeah. very nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Before I met him, I did not think he was going to be as nice as he was. No, he's Just great. Just because he's, he's so great. Yeah. Um, anyways, first album you bought with your own money. Ah, it was um, bringing it all back home, Bob Dylan. Nice. Yeah. What was your first concert? The first ever concert was I was taken to see um, 
Uh, Jesse Fuller, you know the man who the one the one man band at the at the Il Rondo in in Leicester. He was he um, he was he wrote San Francisco Bay Blues. And he 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 was he had oh. he had his own drum kit a drum on uh, and he would kick with a, a thing called a fadula and would play a bass and he would play this twelve string guitar and have harmonicas and things. Beatles or the Rolling Stones. Well, I have to say the Beatles because obviously from Liverpool and uh, with the, with the Lennon thing as well. But I just right. it's your personal brand. Well, yes, but I still love the Stones. I think the Stones and and, and they they're, they're still going and they they still they can still swing to buggery, rock and roll. They can just fantastic, yeah, great. And they're they're in their eighties nearly, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> flying or invisibility. Flying or invisibility? No, I'm not. In, uh, flying, I think. I quite, uh, yeah. quite enjoy flying now. And uh, if I know I'm going to somewhere exotic, I went through a period. <laughs> I went through a period of not of not liking flying. Um, when does that end? Because I'm in that period now. Well, it's interesting. Uh, so somebody said to me that they said, you know, that, are you are you a favorite? There's a, this Arab proverb that um, cowards die a thousand deaths. And I thought, my God, yes, and that and that's, that that <laughs> that cured me. <laughs> but I think I think I think what in actual fact, no, what it was was um, I was fine when I was a young man. When I started having children, then all of a sudden, different things as things came into play, and whenever I would fly, I, it was a different aspect. Uh, but now mm. I enjoy it. Here's the last question. Where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? The place I would love to go back to is 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 the Grand Canyon. Mm. Uh, but the place I would love to see is Canyon de Chey. We, we, did, we didn't get to see that um, when we did the trip of the Southwest. But I'd love to see the Grand Canyon again, yeah. Southwest is like a different planet. Yeah, it is. No, yes, it is. Well, that's it, Steve. Thank you so much for doing the interview and, and talking for so long it's just like so nice to oh pleasure I know, I, let's hope it all came okay. yes I, I knew Cindy thanks for doing your homework as well Chris said you were good he said you he said oh. you, you, you <laughs> he said you'd be on the ball <laughs> that's awesome yeah well I'll see you at Club Passim yes I hope so be lovely be very nice yeah Basic Folk This Week was produced by Eric Norwood. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. Alex Stanton of Townspeople composes our music. You can find Basic Folk wherever you get podcasts and at cindyhouse.net. And please share this episode if you liked it. It would be so helpful. All right. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.